You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. When is it time to take the keys away from those suffering from mild dementia? Even though those with the beginning stages of Alzheimer's disease are considered high-risk drivers, a new study shows more than half can still pass a road test. Dr. Don Iverson with the Humboldt Neurologic Medical Group in Eureka, California, and fellow of the American Academy of Neurology, is the lead author on the AAN's Guidelines on Driving and Dementia. Dr. Iverson joins me to discuss these new AAN guidelines. Dr. Iverson, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Dr. Iverson, for the purpose of really putting a frame around the problem, how large is the scope of the problem, based on your estimates, for patients with mild dementia who are still operating motor vehicles? Nationwide, there are probably several hundred thousand people in that category. For our listeners' purposes, and just looking at the discussion of these new guidelines, when you went forward with the new guidelines, how did you define mild dementia? Well, there's not exactly a definition of mild dementia. It varies depending on the scale you use. Uh, For our purposes, most people would refer to a clinical dementia rating of one as mild dementia. How about if people still use the mini mental status examination? How would that score? That's a screening examination. It's not really comprehensive and it's difficult. There are studies that attempt to correlate MMSE scores with the clinical dementia rating score, but there are fairly wide confidence intervals. The clinical dementia rating score takes into account function outside of the office, so the MMSE is just kind of a snapshot and mostly centered around language testing. It doesn't test visual-spatial skills that well or executive function that well, and it doesn't take into account any historical information. Let's talk a little bit about the clinical dementia rating scale. Is that something that's easily administered in the office for primary care physicians? I would say yes and no. There are specific criteria for scoring for research purposes, and those are pretty stringent. But I think a clinician, uh, including a family practitioner or general practitioner, could look at the clinical dementia rating score and get a a pretty good idea of whether somebody was in the 0.5, which is mild cognitive impairment or very mild dementia, or a score of one. A score of one means that a person has moderate memory loss, moderate difficulty with time relationships, handling problems, similarities, differences, difficulty functioning independently at home, abandoning chores and hobbies. And again, if you want to, for research purposes, you have to really sit down and check it and score it and, you know, what qualifies as a moderate difficulty and so forth. But I think just looking at the CDR in a general sense or general framework, most of this historical information clinicians are already obtaining. So I think, you know, they get the history that a person's given up their hobbies and gets lost around town and, you know, has memory lapses on a daily basis, that sort of thing. You could more or less ballpark that person into a CDR of one. Don, why is it important for doctors to help patients make this decision about whether a patient with mild dementia should stop driving instead of giving it and passing it off to family members? The major reason is that there are statutory requirements which vary state by state, but most of the western states, and I think Pennsylvania, a couple other eastern states, have mandatory reporting laws. And unfortunately for clinicians, the wording of those statutes is pretty vague. Uh, In California, I think it's something to the effect of has a condition that is likely to impair 
unsafe driving, and they define that as an inability to perform one or more functions of daily living. So to take it literally the letter of the law, if, if somebody has difficulty brushing their teeth, which is an activity of daily living, that would qualify as a likely impairment for reporting purposes. You know, I don't think a lot of clinicians really take it that literally, but uh, a lot of the language is pretty vague, likely or may impair or could impair driving, and the statutory requirements are kind of the main reason that this can't be passed off. Why is it that in the study it was looked at how patients who even have a mild dementia are still able to pass a road test? Why is that? Well, they're a pretty heterogeneous group, and there are a lot of factors that determine whether somebody can drive safely. It's really an overlearned behavior, and you know, if somebody has predominant impairment of executive function or visual-spatial function, you would expect that they would have more difficulty than somebody who just had a pure language or a pure memory disturbance. That's probably the major reason, and again, the CDR is kind of a, I won't say vague, but there are qualitative judgments of moderate difficulty and moderate impairment and that sort of thing, and there's obviously a pretty wide bandwidth within any of those descriptors. Don, when we look at the factors that go into making a decision on whether to advise someone to stop driving, there are obviously a lot of them. How do you glean those? Is it primarily during the interview with the patient, meeting with the family? Do you rely heavily on neuropsychological tests? What can you share with our listeners as key items during that interview and that patient visit that make you start thinking, I really have to get this person off the road? I can tell you my approach. The paper that you're referring to is a practice parameter that is an official statement of the American Academy of Neurology, and that has its own language. I can tell you my approach, which is kind of derived from this. We have a questionnaire that accompanies the article, and that's to be filled out by patients or caregivers, and a lot of this information can be obtained offline because sometimes it's a delicate discussion in front of a patient. And the questionnaire addresses issues. Has a person had a ticket? Have they had an accident? Is the caregiver or observer concerned about their driving ability? Have they restricted the number of miles they drive or restricted their driving situations? If you get that questionnaire, basically it's scaled from one to five. The more numbers you get over the four or five range, the higher the risk. You know, it's important to say that there's no cutoff. A person doesn't transition immediately from safe driver to unsafe driver. There's a big gray area there, so it's a qualitative assessment. When I see a patient and their family, the first thing I do is ask the patient's family if they have any concerns. If a family or observer has concerns, it's pretty well substantiated that they have a reason for doing so and that people who have family members who express concerns perform more poorly on an on-road driving test. However, the converse is not true. Necessarily, some caregivers will think the patient's driving fine or report that they are when, in fact, they're not. So it's only helpful if the caregiver's report that there's a problem. Same for the patients. Most patients who recognize a problem will have stopped driving. There are some patients who are clearly impaired but don't recognize the problem for obvious reasons. So if a patient says, I'm doing fine, that has to be disregarded. If the patient says, yeah, I think I'm starting to slip, that needs to be heeded. Then you can look at the driving history, accidents, tickets, near misses. Those are all correlated with it. If a person has aggressive driving behaviors, that's associated with it as well. 
some patients may not explicitly acknowledge that they are losing their driving skills, but they will have started to reduce their driving, reducing their weekly mileage, or categorically avoiding driving in certain situations like at night or in the rain. Most people obviously would prefer not to drive at night or in the rain, but if a person says, I just never drive at night anymore or in the rain, that's been shown to be correlated with poor performance on a driving test. So again, there's a questionnaire that you can kind of get this information offline. And so I personally administer the questionnaire or give the questionnaire to the family and and have them fill it out and give it to me at the time of the next visit. You know, when you're evaluating a patient for dementia, you basically are doing the CDR. Most people are. You're asking about their memory and their function outside of the house, orientation, judgment, home and hobbies, and personal care, and you're getting a rough idea for the extent of dementia. A lot of people use a mini mental status exam. Um, If a person has a score of 24 or lower, that is probably a risk factor. Uh, But again, the converse is not true. In other words, a person with a score of 30 may very well not be a safe driver. So it's really not that useful as a screening exam in the sense that it's not very sensitive in detecting unsafe drivers. So it sounds like this is a multifactorial decision. Dr. Iverson, I'd like to continue with this, but if you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the AAN's driving and dementia guidelines is Dr. Don Iverson. Dr. Iverson is with the Humboldt Neurological Medical Group in Eureka, California, and he's a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. He's also the lead author of these new AAN guidelines. Don, to just expound a little bit about what we were talking about in terms of making a decision to ask someone to stop driving, a lot of times, you know, the family's involved, you're involved, but this really provokes a visceral reaction from the patient in terms of anger, depression. It can be a very stressful time for everybody in the room. How do you try to get around that when you have to approach a patient? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't want to take the keys away from somebody who is capable of driving, and so you really are kind of walking a tightrope. In my experience, a lot of patients are actually receptive to it. If you put it in the terms of, hey, you know, we really wouldn't want you to get in a situation where you could injure somebody. You know, we've done the testing here, and we're concerned that you're at a higher risk for driving unsafely, and, you know, can we make some other arrangements? Can the family drive you around? Can, you know, can we make other arrangements? And sometimes it actually goes down pretty easily. But as you say, particularly with some types of dementia, there's really a lack of insight. There may be some personality implications. And this is a huge deal for some people to lose autonomy. And as you say, they are resistant. And, you know, you can make the case to their family and have the family work on the patient, or in some cases, you refer to the DMV. The guidelines are very helpful. And I really suggest our listeners access those through the AAN website. But one of the things is how often do you recommend that they subject the person to a road test, whether it be through the Department of Motor Vehicles or through a third party like Easter Seals or something of that nature? Do you use that much? We didn't find any evidence that referral to outside specialists had an impact, but it's important to say that these practice parameters we write, evidence-based practice parameters, are really constrained by looking at only higher quality articles. And the kind of the cliche is that uh, absence of evidence does not mean evidence of absence. In other words, if there's not a class one study that shows that you know, having an Easter Seals evaluation leads to 
reduced accidents, that doesn't mean that it doesn't. And some people do refer to an occupational therapist. I think it's reasonable personally. I can't substantiate it with literature, but, you know, it's one more piece of evidence. And really, you're trying to convince a family member either that they're safe or they're unsafe. I mean, if you have somebody and you think they're at risk and you put them in a driving test and they do perfectly fine, then you know, that's the gold standard, and they do fine. We recommend reassessing in six months in terms of a cognitive assessment how often to do an on-road driving test. We, we don't have a specific recommendation. Some states, like California where I'm at, there are budget constraints, and they don't tend to administer on-road driving tests that frequently because they're expensive. So it's difficult to say, you know, go to the DMV every six months and get a driving test because they, they can't comply with that. But you certainly would want to do a mental status examination every three to six months and, you know, maybe take up the issue again in the interim period. Maybe the person's had an accident or a ticket or they've lost a couple points on MMSC and you can say, hey, you know, this is an eventuality. You know, dementia is progressive at some point. This is going to happen and, you know, we, we need to talk about this again. How do you recommend family members or caregivers should proceed if they suspect that the loved one is really losing their ability to operate a vehicle? first thing is to validate this, and it is scientifically validated, that if a caregiver has a concern, they have a good reason to have a concern. That when the patients are put on the road, they tend to do worse. So the first thing is to validate that, and the family can take it up with the patient. Again, in my experience, it tends to be more successful if it's put in terms of, you know, we don't want you to hurt somebody else. And patients of this generation are generally pretty sensitive to that. And say, yeah, you're right, you know, I don't want to be a burden to somebody, and then the daughter says, well, it's okay, Dad, we can drive you around or whatever, and it goes easily. That's the best case. Worst case, when the person is resistant, then the caregivers report it to the doctor, and the doctor, unfortunately, has to be the bad cop. And the way I explain it is, you know, I don't decide whether you drive or not. That's up to the DMV. All I can say is I'm legally obligated to report anybody who is at risk for unsafe driving. And so I'm going to send that report. What the DMV does is up to them, but I do not have the power, nor do I want the power to revoke your driving privileges. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Don Iverson, with the Humboldt Neurologic Medical Group in Eureka, California, and lead author of the AAN's Guidelines on Driving and Dementia. Dr. Iverson, thanks again for taking time and being my guest today here on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you, Tony. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.